teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, the... Ocean was mentioned a little earlier this morning in one of our songs, and you know it's interesting, even though the ocean covers nearly three-quarters of this planet, it's estimated that less than 10% of the ocean has actually been explored by human beings. That number is significantly less for exploration on the bottom of the ocean. Even though it contains many amazing geological features, huge mountains and valleys all over the ocean, but hidden under its surface. The average depth of the ocean is about two miles. And by comparison, the average height of land um, is only half a mile. So there's significant things going on beneath the surface of the ocean. Back in 1875, a converted British warship called the HMS Challenger was sent on a global maritime research expedition. And part of that expedition is they would actually measure the bottom of the ocean. They used a highly technical method, especially for the late 19th century. They, would, uh, they took a, a large weight, they tied it to a rope, and then they would lower the rope down until they could lower it no further. And that's how they would measure. It was a long rope, by the way. There was one location east of the Philippines to their amazement, as they were lowering the rope, they kept lowering and lowering and lowering lowering it to over 4,500 fathoms, which is about five miles. I told you they had a lot of rope. (laughs) They measured this area and continued to measure all around it, but they found a location that was five miles deep. More measurements have been done over the years. In 1950, around 1950, there were extended measurements done by sonar of the ocean floor, and, and that region that the HMS Challenger was in was also measured. And during that measurement, they discovered this massive canyon there. It's about 1,500 miles long. It extends south of Japan. It's called the Mariana Trench. And that canyon is about 50 times larger than the Grand Canyon. In fact, one part of the trench measured almost seven miles down. That part of the Mariana Trench is named Challenger Deep in honor of the HMS Challenger Uh, which discovered the trench. And about 10 years later, 1960, there were two men, Jacques Picard, no relation to Jean-Luc, by the way. Some of you got that one. And Don Walsh. Uh, These were two men who did the unthinkable. They got inside this submersible, submersible, and they took it down to the bottom of Challenger Deep, seven miles down below the surface. This accomplishment is quite amazing. Because there's something about, as you go down in the water, think about what's above you. There's some weight, right? Now think if you're seven miles deep, how much pressure would be on top of you? We experience, yeah, a lot. We experience about 15 pounds per square inch here on the surface. But as you go, every 30 feet below the surface of the water, it adds another 15 pounds per square inch. So that at the bottom of Challenger Deep, 36,000 feet down, the pressure is almost eight tons per square inch. So if you were to be laying down on the bottom of the ocean there, you'd have 20 million pounds on top of you. Just amazing. And these guys took that thing down. 
About two-thirds of the way down, by the way, Walsh said uh, in his memoirs that they heard this loud noise and they looked around and the outer pane of their window had broken. But fortunately, the in inner pane uh, stayed intact or else they would have been crushed instantly. So they continued their journey. They went down, down further. They reached the bottom of Challenger Deep. And when they reached the bottom, they turned on the lights. And this is what they saw. A fish actually was there. If you can see it outlined there. It wasn't this fish, but it was one like it. This fish is called a flatfish. Which I thought, yeah, no duh, right? <laughs> you had 20 million pounds on top of you. You'd be flat too. <laughs> this fish has been discovered various places at the bottom of the ocean, scavenging the ocean floor for food. In addition to the flatfish, they also found an amphipod, one like this one. This one was found four miles deep, but they saw uh, others that were there. Seven miles down. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely amazing. Freezing water, no sunlight. Sunlight goes away about half a mile down and under 16,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. That God could even make such creatures. It's unbelievable. Well, they're not the only ones down in the deep. There are several others. I looked up a few this week. I thought you might be interested. There's one called the viper fish. Now, I call that a big mouth. <laughs> He likes to talk. Um, of course, there is the anglerfish. Probably have seen this one. This is one of the more unique ones. It has that luminescent bulb in front of it that it dangles there to, to attract prey or a mate. This is the fish that, that's a female, and the male is much smaller. He attaches himself to the female, and after spawning, he gets absorbed into her and is no more. That's wild, isn't it? No illustration there. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> then there is... My favorite for the ugliest deep sea fish on the planet is the stoplight loose jaw. Now, that is ugly. Not even a mother could love that face. I mean, but this guy swims around at, you know, around a mile or two down below the surface of the ocean. It's amazing to think of these creatures. Now, there only have been two manned expeditions down to the bottom of Challenger Deep. One was the one I mentioned in 1960. There was another one a little over 50 years later done by James Cameron, of all people. He's the guy who directed Titanic. Titanic's about two miles down, by the way. But uh, James Cameron had gone down in this submersible, and he thought it'd be interesting. He attached a Rolex watch outside the submersible to one of the arms and took it down with him. When he came back up to the surface, the watch still worked. I guess he didn't buy one of those knockoff versions on the beach. This thing was for real. But he spent about three hours down there at the bottom, Challenger Deep. Walsh and Picard spent about 20 minutes or 30 minutes down there. And both of these expeditions were, again, quite amazing. If you think about it, actually, there are fewer people have been at the bottom of Challenger Deep than on the moon. And yet these guys were there spending over three hours looking at many incredible things down at the deepest spot in the ocean. And there was something else there resting on the ocean floor besides that flatfish and those shrimp. Something that they didn't see, though. Something that Cameron and Walsh and Picard did not notice. But it is something that was revealed by the prophet Micah at the end of his prophecy in Micah chapter 7. So if you could please turn there with me, and we'll find out what it is. Micah chapter 7. If you remember, Micah began this chapter with the lament. Remember, he started with the words, "'Woe is me! What misery is mine!' And he went on to describe how, 
how the sin was pervasive among his people, how he felt alone there despite his many pleas and, and his warnings and his calls to repent. They just ignored him and continued on in sin. And it had gotten to a point, Micah said in verse 2, where he said there's not one godly person around here. There's no upright or honest person in this land. He felt alone. He became deeply discouraged. But then came verse 7 where he had this resolve as he declares, but as for me, I will wait, watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We saw there that, that resolve that he had to wait patiently for the Lord and the confidence that he had that God would hear him, that God would hear his pleas, his cries for help, his, his lament that he had expressed. The question arises, though, how could Micah be so confident in God? How could he know for sure God would hear him? How could he know that if he waited expectantly and patiently that God would answer? Where did this faith in God come from? What was its basis? Well, the answer to that is in the rest of chapter 7. So we'll look at in verses 8 to 17, Micah reveals a future promise And in verses 18 to 20, a fantastic realization. And both of these which provided a basis for his great trust in God. So let's look first at the future promise in verse 8. And I'd ask you if you would please stand one more time as we read God's word, verses 8 to 17. After declaring his resolve to wait for God in verse 8, Micah says this, in verse 7, excuse me, he says this in verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls, On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession which dwells by itself in the woodland in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will be a see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread, and they will be afraid before you. We'll stop there. Thanks. You may be seated. Here in verse 8, we see an abrupt shift in tone and style and even content from Micah as compared to the previous verses. Verses 1 to 7, he, he talked about this lament, he expressed this lament, and then in verse 7, of this faith in God after lamenting his situation. And then he shifts gears and he, he begins with this rebuke of an enemy who's gloating over him, the hard times that had befallen him. And then as we get to verse 9, we see his willingness to endure and bear God's chastisement for his sin and his declaration that God would restore him. But in all of that, the question arises, who is speaking here? Is it Micah? Is he the one speaking? Or is he speaking for someone else? 
And if he is speaking for someone else, then who is that? Is it an individual? Is it a group of people? And who is this enemy that he's talking about? It seems at first blush that Micah is speaking for himself, right? How do we, how do we see that? Notice the first person personal pronouns. I, me, my. That's what he used back in verses 1 to 7 as he was speaking. Verse 8, he continues on. So it would seem to me be that he is speaking about himself. But if you carefully examine the verses after verse 9, we see that he's actually speaking for someone else. If you look at verse 10 and verse 11, notice there's a pronoun there, your. You see that there? He says there, where is the Lord, your God? That's a taunt that's given against the speaker. And then in verse 11, building your walls. We don't see it in the English here, but that your is a feminine pronoun. So the speaker here is feminine. And Micah, we know, is not a woman. And so he must be speaking for someone else. Now, what would be considered, or what was considered a feminine gender? We often refer to places or cities, right, in the feminine or nations. He's speaking here on behalf of Israel, particularly Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been the focus almost the entire book, right? And here in verse 11, he talks about her walls being rebuilt. And that term referring to as as her, that that your in the feminine, is indicating that there's a feminine speaker here, that Micah is speaking on behalf of Jerusalem. He is speaking as Jerusalem is proclaiming the taunt of their enemy, and that taunt being, where is your God, as it says to Jerusalem. And the question isn't, well, okay, but... If he's not speaking for himself, I mean, seven just seems to flow right into eight. I don't see any abrupt transition. How, is, how do we know there's a transition there? Well, again, we have to remember something. We are reading what Micah said. We aren't hearing it. So any change in tone, any pause, any rhetorical device that would indicate a shift would be apparent if we were listening to it. For example, let me read those two verses to you again to help make the point. But as for me... I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. You see there, I can communicate that shift verbally. And I'm bringing this up because I want to point out Micah's doing this as a rhetorical device, a rhetorical technique. He continues on speaking in the first person as if he's having this conversation with an enemy in order to draw attention to what is being said. It's a a poetic device. It heightens the dramatic impact. It effectively draws in the listener. Just, what's he saying? And who's he talking? Who's he speaking for? That's the idea There are many examples of the prophets doing this, of them speaking on behalf of somebody else, using the personal pronouns I and me and my. Micah did it earlier in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. So if Micah is speaking for Jerusalem here, who then is the enemy? Some say it's Assyria. They were the present-day enemy in Micah's time, and they had inflicted much harm upon Judah in his time. But notice in verses 11 and 12, Micah is speaking of the future. He says, in that day or on that day. Others say Edom may be the enemy, since Edom was known in Scripture for being one that taunted Israel. We saw that when we looked at Obadiah, or Psalm 137 describes Edom doing that. Others say the enemy is Babylon in the future, because they would be taken into exile by Babylon. And verse 8 seems to indicate perhaps that event. But notice in verse 11, Micah also mentions that at that time, her borders would be expanded. And that did not happen when 
The Jews were freed from Babylon. So I think here this enemy is a future enemy, the enemy at the time of Israel's restoration, the enemy at the time when Messiah comes and defeats that enemy. And it is an enemy which at that time taunts Israel for her fallen condition. And he speaks here of being uh, in darkness. Sometimes that's a reference to being imprisoned. But then how God would bring him into the light, would free Israel from their condition, from their consequences. Notice here in verse 9 as well, there's something different that we haven't seen yet in this book. For how have the people of Judah been responding to Micah up to this point? Were they readily accepting him? Were they thinking, oh yes, Micah, we understand what you're saying. We want to repent. We thank you for warning us and we will turn to God now. Was that their response? Not at all, right? They were sarcastic. We saw that back in the beginning of chapter 6. They were defensive. They continued on in their sin. They ignored essentially what Micah was telling them. But here in verse 9, what is their attitude? These future Jews say this, I will bear the indignation. That's a word for fury. I will bear the fury of God because I sinned against him. I deserve it. These are the consequences that are rightly being given for my sin. There's a change in tone here. This is a changed people that is speaking. A repentant people. For Micah here is speaking for the godly remnant of Judah in the future. And notice here from this remnant, there's no resignation here. There's still hope. They're not saying, well, you know what? We deserve this sin. This is just going to be our lot in life to be under God's judgment forever. See, they, they knew God to be one who judges sin, but they also knew him to be one who shows mercy. And they appeal to that mercy in the rest of verse 9 as they look forward to the light of freedom, the salvation that God would bring. And then in verse 10, as the enemy ridicules Israel, saying, Where is your God? You've been abandoned. Look at all that's happened to you in your history. God has forgotten about you. He's given up. But to that, the godly remnant replies, No, that the tables will be turned. And in verse 10, it is her enemy that will be trampled down like mud in the streets and covered with shame, not Israel. Then comes verse 11. Micah again shifts from first person to third person as he prophetically tells of Jerusalem's walls being built. And some think this is referencing uh, when Nehemiah built the walls of Jerusalem in 445 B.C. But notice again that it says in verse 11 also that the borders would be expanded. That didn't happen in Nehemiah's time. In fact, in Nehemiah's time, they were still under Persian rule. So he's speaking here of a future event. That word for wall as well is not the word normally used for city wall. It's a word that's used to describe the stone fences around a vineyard or a, a flock of sheep. What it is here, it's giving a picture that in this future day, Jerusalem would be a place where people would enjoy peace and prosperity and could raise their livestock and raise their vineyards, grow their vineyards without any threat. The picture here is prosperity and peace. Micah adds in verse 12 that he continues that picture with this idea of the faithful remnant of God's people coming from far and wide. Those Jews who had been scattered across the planet will be gathered again and reunified. He says they will come from the far northwest in Assyria, or far northeast in Assyria, and the far southwest from Egypt. From sea to sea and mountain to mountain, they would be gathered again. This reunification was discussed earlier by Micah in 2.12 and 4.6. And as Micah is reflecting back on this restoration or restoration that would happen in the future, he remembers that God had promised to shepherd his people. 
Micah 2.12 and Micah 5.4 describe that. And so in verse 14, Micah prays, and he prays, God, fulfill your promise. Shepherd your people with your scepter. Scepter there is uh, this, uh, uh, the shepherd's rod he's referring to. Remember the one that David referred to in Psalm 23? Your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. That's what Micah is speaking of here. And in his prayer, he, he asks that God would lead his people to Bashan and, and Gilead. Now, he wasn't saying literally to take them there, but these were places that were known. Sorry, we got that ugly fish up there still. You've been staring at that the whole time and didn't say anything? It's hypnotic, you know. It can hypnot- Anyway, here's a map of Israel. Those three locations I circle, Gilead to the east, Bashan up near the Sea of Galilee, And then he mentions the fruitful field or garden land, as ESV puts it in the middle of verse 14. That may be a reference to Carmel up on the northwestern coast. But these places are mentioned because they were all known for having lush agriculture. They were rich pasture lands. And so in his prayer, he's essentially saying, God, lead your people in blessing and care for them and comfort them as as you would sheep coming to these rich lands to be well fed and cared for. And then in verse 15, we see another transition. As God then speaks to Micah, answering his prayer, saying that he would be as in the days of Egypt, like in the Exodus. He would uh, treat his people and perform these mighty miracles as he did then. In verses 16 and 17, God assures that his people would be protected as he describes how he will take care of the nations that were her enemies. Notice in verse 17, there's a beginning there. It says, they will lick, the nations will lick the dust like a serpent. That's an expression indicating utter humiliation and defeat. It's one that was familiar in the ancient Near Eastern times. Often uh, conquered enemies, their king would come before the nation and the king that had conquered them and would bow down their face in the dirt. In fact, let me show you an example of this. This is a black obelisk from the time of Assyria, about 100 years before Micah's day. And here in the picture, the one... There's a man bowing before King Shalmaneser. The man bowing is King Jehu of Israel. There's an inscription that describes this. Yes, believe it or not, the Bible actually is true. You know, it, it describes real events. But they found this obelisk representing that very event. And notice King Jehu, his face is all the way to the ground. It almost looks like he's licking the dust. This is a picture. And the Assyrians, of course, you know, they would boast about this. And look at these kings we've subjugated to ourselves. This was at the time when Jehu brought a tribute to the king of Assyria. But God says in the future, his people would be the other way around, that the enemies of God and his people would be bowing before God's Messiah. And rather than Jehu being on the ground, it will be the enemy nations. And so I kind of rushed through these verses Uh, quickly I just wanted to give you a brief view of them overall because these verses are uh, what's become a common occurrence with the minor prophets how they always end their books if you look back at Hosea and Joel and Obadiah and Amos they all ended their books in the same way focusing on this end time when God's Messiah returns he restores his people reunifies them and all the enemy nations of God and against his people would be dealt with Micah again ends his book in the same way. And we'll see it in the future minor prophets as well. This prophet, uh, prophet spoke of this promise of restoration, and undoubtedly that was what was on his mind when he said verse 7. That confidence that he had, that faith and hope he had in God. And he looked ahead to 
this time when God would bring salvation. And that's what pulled him out of his discouragement. Rather than looking at what was in front of him, Micah looked with the eyes of faith to what was ahead of him. And again, this brother teaches us by his own example and gives us a lesson. For we too are reminded again how when we set our eyes on the things around us, when our focus and attention is on the things of this world, what will that lead to in, within our own hearts? Discouragement. Feeling a hopelessness. But as we set our eyes upon God's future promises, that, brothers and sisters, is where we will find hope and encouragement. As we saw last week, finding that hope in the midst of despair depends upon the object of your attention, doesn't it? What are you focused on? What is the object that gets your attention? If you stay focused on your circumstances or your own resources or look to some way to escape the problems and situations around you, there's no lasting hope in those things. But if the object of your attention is the Lord Jesus Christ, if He is your focus, that brings a whole different perspective, doesn't it? We must never forget Paul's instruction in Colossians 3.1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking. That's present tense, ongoing. Keep seeking what? The things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. These are profound words given by the Apostle Paul. I find them to be among the most encouraging in Scripture because Paul isn't saying, yeah, life is bad, so just, just focus on heaven and what it'll be like there. Paul is saying, focus on who is there. Paul is directing our attention to saying, set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's where our attention needs to be. And then he gives these amazing words, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you know what that means? It's not flowery speech that Paul's just uh, showing off his rhetorical skills. He's saying that in Christ, you have been given this intimate relationship with him and with the Father, and you are hidden there. No one can take it from you. Satan is not powerful enough to find that box and open it where you're hidden, the box of fellowship and relationship with the God of the universe. And Paul's saying, so keep your focus up there because that's where you are. That's your identity. That's what your relationship really is. It's not here in terms of what is, exists now, your present circumstances. And notice he says, you, you are so wrapped up, uh, intertwined, connected to God in Christ, that really Christ is your life. Notice that next line. He says, Christ who is our life. When he is revealed then you also be what? Reveal with him in glory. <laughs> Do you, I mean, think about this. Don't move quickly beyond those words. When Christ is revealed, Christ who is our life, you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's exactly what was on Micah's mind, that glorious future that was ahead. That's where he had his hope and attention fixed. Now, you've heard that phrase, uh, those who are heavenly minded are for no earthly good, or something like that, right? 
That's baloney. <laughs> Those who are heavenly minded, their thoughts fixed upon Christ, heavenly minded, they are those who have set their attention on him and they are really living the true life, eternal life with Christ in God. And in the same way, beloved, keep, keep your mind fixed on Jesus and who you are in Christ and what is ahead for you again. When he is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. Who you really are and the relationship you really have with him, you'll see in full. That's an amazing thing to think about. Christ, who is our life, is revealed. You also will be revealed with him in glory. Amen? Micah 7, going back there, we'll notice that, you know, I stopped at verse 17. Most of the previous prophets would stop there. After describing Israel's restoration, after describing judgment upon the nations, that's typically how they would end it. This is an encouragement to his people. But notice, Micah didn't end at verse 17, did he? There's a few more verses few more words that he had. It's like, he, it's almost, you know, he's, he's speaking of this future repentant people. He's foretelling their restoration, the, the coming peace and prosperity. And then it's like all of a sudden, bang, there's this epiphany that he has. This realization that he comes to and he's overwhelmed by it. So overwhelmed he begins verse 18 with, who, who is a God like you? Now that's not a question seeking information. He's not out with his notepad. Okay, God, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. Can you tell me some things about yourself? Who, who, who are you? That's not it at all. This, this isn't a question. It's really a declaration. It's a declaration. That's one that Moses gave. We'll see that in a minute. But as Micah considers, again, think, think about the prophet. He's, he's preached all these messages. He's probably toward the end of his 20-year-plus ministry there. In verses 1 to 6, he describes this lament. Nothing is changing. People are getting worse. Nobody cares about uh, God or his truth or loving him or serving him. Then he comes to verse 7, and, and he climbs out of that despair, recognizing that God knows and hears. And then he describes, verses 8 to 17, how this people who were full in sin, and, and they're going to be restored. They're going to be brought back into the land. They're going to be cared for. He gets to verses 8 to 17. There's this complete reversal from reprimand to reward, from affliction to affluence, from consequences to comfort, from punishment to prosperity. And it's in that moment, Micah must have wondered or reflected on how do they get there? How do they get from judgment to restoration? How is it that, that God would accept them? How is it that these people could be delivered from their sin and have a relationship with God? How does that happen? Now Micah is standing on the precipice of a wonderful realization. He's, he's overlooking now the Grand Canyon of God's glory as he considers and stands there in awe because he's been given a little more of a glimpse of who God is. So he says, who is a God like you? Just what is it that Micah saw? What is it that he realized? Well, let's keep reading in verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. And it is now we see the source of Micah's great confidence and trust and hope in God. For it is now that we see how he could wait for such a God, how he could know that this God would hear him. And then he, as he reflects and tells us why, Micah, has, he's given us a gift here. It's like he's pulled out this beautiful diamond ring out of his pocket and handed it to us. It's the ring, the glistening diamond of God's forgiveness. So I'd just like us now to, to be like that young woman who's seeing and looking upon her engagement ring for the first time. To look at this wonderful jewel and gaze upon it for a moment. To, to marvel in the grace of God that is glistening from, many like to call it the rock, the many facets of this diamond that we see here to capture our attention. And, and Micah unfolds here, here several facets of God's forgiveness. The first facet that we can notice here is that God's forgiveness is a complete forgiveness. See there are the many words he uses for sin, iniquity, uh, rebellious act or transgression, sins. It's like he's saying each and every sin, any sin, any act of wickedness, any evil doing or endeavor, all sins are included in this. And then what does it say that Micah does with God's, with our sins? What does God do? God who what? Pardons. Pardons our iniquities. That word pardon has the root idea of lifting up. It's this picture of God lifting our sins off of our back. You remember John Bunyan's Christian as he squeezed through the narrow gate? What slid off of his back? Remember his burden? The burden of his sin? Micah's describing that here. God lifting their sin. In addition to pardoning sins, Micah says that God will pass over their rebellious acts. That's uh, intended to remind us of another amazing work of God in the days of Egypt when it was a dark night and God passed over those houses that had the lamb's blood on the door. Do you remember that? And the reason I say that there's intention here for Micah to remember that event is that question that he asks, who is a God like you? That's the exact same question that Moses and the people sang right after God had drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, 11, they sang, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? See, I think Micah here is alluding to the Exodus event because God brought it up back in verse 15. In answer to the prayer, when he said that there in verse 15, he talked about as in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt. And so Micah here with his question of verse 18 and again talking about God passing over, these are bringing to mind again those events that took place. Again, that miracle of the Passover. And in Micah's referencing it here, he's giving the idea of just as God did not bring judgment upon any door having lamb's blood upon it, so too he will not bring judgment for any sin upon the hearts of those who have the lamb's blood upon them. Their sin will not be held against them. No sin. It's complete forgiveness. In addition to complete forgiveness, Micah also notes here that it is also a loving forgiveness. Because think about this. It's, it's one thing, you know, if somebody sins against you, 
and you say, you know what, I forgive you. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to be bitter about it. That's one thing. It's quite another to embrace that person with love and compassion and pursue a relationship with them. Those are two different things. Micah here is describing God is not one that simply just says, yeah, I forgive you. I won't think about it anymore. We're good. He's beyond that. He is a God who will not retain his anger forever, who will again pour out compassion upon us, who delights in loyal love. There's that word hesed again, loyal love, this love that bestows unconditional acts of kindness and mercy upon another for their good. And God, it says, delights in that. He delights in loyal love. Because God, you see, he's not a begrudging forgiver. He doesn't forgive and then regret it. He doesn't hold our sin over us. He doesn't treat us like an unwanted stepchild that he's obligated to forgive. No, notice it says he wants to forgive. He desires to pour compassion upon us. He delights in it. It's an amazing thing that God does. When you come to him seeking forgiveness, confessing your sin, genuinely desiring to turn from it, God embraces that and says, I want to forgive you. This is, it's my pleasure to forgive you. Have you ever said that when someone's asked your forgiveness? How different is God than us? I realize I've probably never said that to anybody when they've asked my forgiveness. You know what? It's my honor and privilege and pleasure to do that. We just say, yeah, okay, I forgive you. God says, this is what I've been waiting for. It's amazing. We're reminded in Psalm 103, what Tim read from earlier, and David said, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And beloved, aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that he doesn't retain his anger? That he's not scowling at you if you're his child? Aren't you glad that he doesn't have fits of bitterness where your sins flood his mind and he has to struggle with, oh, yeah, I said I forgave him. I can't bring it up. Oh, God doesn't do that. He doesn't retain his anger forever. He doesn't hold on to our sin. He doesn't struggle with bitterness. So don't fear going to him and asking for forgiveness. Don't fear that. He stands ready and eager to any who would genuinely repent and confess. Don't fear his response. Our compassionate father ran towards prodigal son and embraced him. He embraced him. He didn't shun him. Not only is this diamond showing God's complete forgiveness and his loving forgiveness, it's also a transforming forgiveness. This is amazing. Look at the middle of verse 19, that second line. It says there, God will what? what? Will tread our what? That's the picture there often ancient Near Eastern times that, that a defeated enemy would come up before the victorious leader, the general or king, and the king would have his foot upon the neck of that defeated enemy. That's the picture here. And what is under God's foot? What has been defeated and subdued, subjugated? Our sin. Our sin. God has a big foot, by the way. That sin is not going anywhere. He has trampled, he has crushed it underneath his foot. You know, it's one thing to forgive sin. It's quite another to defeat it. 
It's amazing here. Micah's describing, the, again, this picture of the warrior overcoming its mortal enemy. A.R. Fawcett said this, When God takes away the guilt of sin, that it may not condemn us, he takes away also the power of sin, that it may not rule us. Spurgeon said, The same blessed God who pardoned our sins will conquer them. Again, God not only removes the punishment for sin, he removes the power of sin. That was Paul's whole point in Romans 6 when he said in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There is such hope in these words. There is such hope in that phrase that God has trampled your iniquities, my iniquities, under his feet. Smashed them down into the mud. And his foot is firmly pressed there. You need to have this picture of your sin in your mind like that. Picture that it's being crushed beneath his foot. It's not getting up again. It's defeated. Recall from Psalm 103 where David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. He's not speaking there of physical disease. Right? He just said, Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. What disease is he talking about? Our sin. The source of our iniquities. He heals that disease, the corruption of the heart. You see, God not only pardons, He also heals. He he not only deals with the effects of our sin by forgiving us, He heals the disease completely. Once God is done with His radiation treatment, He's done. He's done. It's over. Never coming back. His forgiveness is transformative. Remember what Jesus said in John 3 to Nicodemus? You must be what? Born again? It's a rebirth. Or Paul said in Titus 3 that we're saved not by our own works, but by his mercy, and that we're regenerated. We're transformed. We're changed. When you're forgiven, when you ask Christ for forgiveness, and you confess your sins to him and seeking his mercy, then he forgives you and he transforms you. You are changed. But Tim, it sure doesn't feel like I'm changed. It doesn't feel like I've been healed of my diseases, of sin. It sure doesn't seem like its power has been removed. He keeps slipping out of God's, under God's foot, it seems. I would encourage you, spend time on Romans 6 and really tr- seek to understand. Meditate on what Paul's saying there. Spend time on Micah 7, verse 19. Focus your attention because, beloved, if God has trampled your iniquities, they're trampled. They're crushed. The word there means to subdue, to bring into bondage. And again, God is is pretty strong. (laughs) Sin is no longer one that has power over you. It's a defeated enemy. That's why Romans 6, Paul says, live in that reality. Meditate on that truth. Because our thinking affects what we feel and it affects what we do. So have the right thinking. 
So much more we could say on that. We only have time for one more facet, but it's a beautiful one. The last line of verse 19. Micah shows us that God's forgiveness is a permanent forgiveness. He says there, Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Again, Micah's alluding back to the Exodus. In Exodus 15, in Moses' song, as they were singing to the Lord, they sang in verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into sea. I won't sing it. I don't want to hurt your ears. I'll just read it. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And that's what Micah's referencing here. And he's saying that he's calling to mind that event so that they would realize, you know what, just like Pharaoh's chariots went down, and did any of them pop up? Did you see a wheel floating up? See a helmet around there? Some guys, hey, throw a life raft over this way. Did anyone survive that? Not one. They sang that those chariots sank like a stone to the bottom. And Micah's saying, in the same way, where is your sin? Just like those chariots, it's sunk, and there ain't no survivors. It's gone. It's buried. It's totally removed. Thomas Watson said, Sin shall be cast in, sin shall not be cast in like a cork which rises up again, but like lead which sinks to the bottom. I love what Thomas Brooks said. What falls into a brook may be retrieved, but what is cast into the sea cannot be recovered. But there are some shallow places in the sea, true, but their sins are not cast in there, but into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea are devouring depths, from whence their sins shall never come forth again. But what if they do not sink? He will hurl them in with force, so that they shall go to the bottom and sink as lead in the mighty waters of the Redeemer's blood. Amen? I mean, our sins don't just, like, fall overboard. God takes them and thrusts them down. Like this massive weight sinking rapidly to the bottom of the ocean. And believe me, not even James Cameron can find them down there. They're gone. They're buried deep within the mud of the Mariana Trench, never to rise again. You think about that. Isaiah 38, 17, Hezekiah said, You have cast your sins behind your back, speaking to the Lord. Now, let me ask you again, a little biology lesson here. Which direction are our eyes facing? Try to turn your neck all the way around. Well, maybe you shouldn't. That would freak me out if you could do <laughs> Right? But you don't see what's behind you anymore. And that was Hezekiah's point. God, you've thrown your sins behind you. You don't look back at them. Or in Isaiah 1.18, Isaiah declared to a repentant people, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. You ever seen newly fallen snow on the ground? Then we read that wonderful passage in Psalm 103 earlier. As far as the east is from the west, so far you have cast our sins from us. Beloved, we have to pause. This diamond is glistening right now. I want you to look at it. Permanent forgiveness. These expressions are all meant to communicate that. Your sins are at the bottom of the ocean. I defy you to go down, try to swim down and find them. 
Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Again, St. Paul's and, and consider what these verses are saying. If you've truly confessed your sin to Christ, if you have truly repented, if you have truly recognized that you are a sinner in need of his forgiveness, that you can't forgive yourself, that you can't remove your sins any other way, if you are genuinely asking Christ to forgive you, then your sins are gone forever, entirely, completely. There's nothing floating on the surface, not one. Unbelievable. Your sins were were taken off of your back and put onto the back of Jesus Christ. They were nailed to the cross. That cross became a stone that God then cast into the deep ocean. Doesn't it grip you? The depth of his forgiveness. It's permanent. And Micah, Micah could think of no other way to express the magnitude of this but them saying it. They're cast into the bottom of the sea. I like what Corey Tenboom said. When I confess my sins to the Father, Jesus Christ washed them in his blood. They are now cast into the deepest sea, and a sign is put up that says, No fishing allowed. I like that. God will never bring them up again, so you shouldn't either. We should not choose to remember what God has chosen to forget. Again, let's pause. Look at this jewel. You know, Micah could only scratch the surface of God's forgiveness, but even in that little scratch, oh, what he has, has revealed, what he has shown us. So amazing that God would, would take a wretched sinner like me, that he would embrace me, that he would forgive me and never bring my sins up again and that he would treat me as his own son and look at me as his own son and what Jesus did to make this happen. Who is a God like you? It was 10.30 in the morning on October 2nd, 2006 when a man named Charles Roberts barricaded himself in a one-room Amherst School in Pennsylvania. About 30 minutes later, he opened fire, killing five children execution style with a shot to the back of the head. His children were aged 6 to 13. The coroner on the scene counted at least 20 bullet wounds in one of the children and was so overwhelmed, she, she had to stop doing her investigation. Well, afterwards, several members of the Amish community, the same Amish community, visited Robert's wife to comfort her. One Amish man held Robert's sobbing father in his arm for nearly an hour. They also set up a charitable fund to care for Charles's wife and his three children, the same man that had brutally executed their children. At Robert's funeral, over half of the people there were from that same Amish community. Not to protest, but to mourn. 
And so an overwhelmed Marie Roberts, she wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors. And in it she said this, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. And you know, a a watching world was standing there looking at these things in utter disbelief. Not just for the horrific acts of Charles Roberts, but even more so at the response of those who suffered because of him. Many people were asking, how could a man do such evil? But many more were, were asking, how could the parents of these children forgive him and care for his wife and family? They had given a response, one of the parents, to Marie's letter. Their response was, we forgive because he has forgiven us. Did these families grieve their loss? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't you? It's horrible. But despite that grief, they were able to forgive. And you know why? Because they had a glimpse of what Micah saw. They understood and experienced God's forgiveness. And that's the power of knowing God's forgiveness. Not only the joy we experience in gratitude to God, but our ability to extend that to another. You know, they knew that they were murderers too, just as you and I are murderers. You and I have murdered someone's son. We murdered God's son. Our sin put him on the cross. You and I are murderers. We were in the crowd crying out to crucify him. And yet, God says to any who would repent, I forgive you. Completely. Who is a God like you? Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed. The depth of your forgiveness. uh, We have committed many sins against you. We committed acts that, Lord, put your son on the cross. And yet, Father, you willingly will forgive. And I pray, God, if there are any here who have not genuinely confessed their sin, who do not have a relationship with you, that, God, you would open their eyes to see the beauty of our Savior and that he stands ready to forgive. Lord, that so that none would perish in eternal hell. I pray, God, that you would open their eyes, and I pray, God, you would open our eyes further to who you are and to just how incredible it is that you, the God of all creation, perfect and holy, would extend such a gift to us. And just to think about, Lord Jesus, you were the one that stood condemned when we were the ones that deserved it. You were the one that was reproached by the Father when we're the ones that deserve it. His amazing love that you would die for us. I pray in your name. Amen.